Hi, I'm the bronchial sick Aiel, Dalen. And I'm the chief of police. And Rand, I need you to turn in the true source in your badge, because you're done. You're a loose cannon dragon. I'm Eric. And welcome to Loyal's Book Club, a podcast dedicated to dissecting and discussing Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series, The Wheel of Time. And, uh, what a couple of chapters we got today. What a couple of chapters, indeed. I am your first-time reader. And I'm your grizzled warder. You know. Uh, but... Welcome to the remake of episode 13. We had some fun the last time. Uh, What ended up happening is we recorded the episode and then halfway through or right towards the end, we looked and the Pro Tools session had shut down. Not only had it shut down, it had deleted the entire episode. So... Yeah, I know. The, the crazy thing, though, is every episode I, I normally have a, you know, a, a little a little boy with me who who is my scribe. And normally he takes notes every single episode, getting the whole sure. transcript between me and Dalen. And the only time I didn't have him was was recording this episode originally. So unfortunately, all that content is just lost into the ether. Yeah. You know, he was getting COVID tested, he was busy, he had to go all the way to Northridge for it, so I can't really but, blame him. Yeah, but that's okay, um, that just means everything is uh, fresh and right original. Now, so, uh, if you hear intermittent coughing, if I that is to say if I don't edit it out, I am sick. Don't, Erica and I are not in the same room, I promise. <laughs> um but just a bit of housekeeping before we dive into chapters 21 to 26. Uh, we wanted to say thank you to everyone that turned out uh, last week to our watch party for RuPaul's Drag Race Season 5 and our uh, Trevor Project fundraiser. Um, and if you missed it, don't fret. There's going to be a part two where we finish up the season. Um, that date's going to be announced, so uh, don't worry about that. So yeah, and actually, uh, Amy and I are catching up on it a little bit. Uh, we're, we're trying to get up to the point where you are. And if I can just say, uh, before the most recent lip sync for your life happened, I literally had a note. I was like, I was thinking this in the back of my mind. And I looked at Amy and I said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait until this after this lip sync battle, because there's one thing I want to see that I have not seen yet. And that is, I want to see a drag queen absolutely eat it up. And this was the episode with Coco uh, doing "I Want to Grow Up" with with the uh, with the the girlish uh, like the little girl costume, and it was it was oh Monica oh. Beverly Hills oh when I grew yes. up where she eats Monica Beverly Hills he ate a full serving and went back for seconds. It was just it was absolutely brilliant. So excited oh, to yeah. excited to finish um, that. We up. gotta appreciate the camera work though when Coco was announced safe. And it just zooms in on Alyssa. It was so good. It, it is honestly probably like in my top three reality TV camera shot moments. Uh, it, it is probably, it's number two or number one at least. Oh, yeah. It's some good stuff. And uh, you got some really great episodes coming up. I mean, that episode is great because Coco as the ventriloquist doll was just tiny. It was. Man, I. I tell you, you know, like, I 
I personally, I would, I, I, I think I would, I would, I would do drag to try it. I, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily my arena or where I should be, but I would definitely give it a go because I'm, I'm a performer. I like performing. And I will try your most... makeup. I will try to do your makeup for you. We'll be sisters. Oh, it'd, it'd be so good. I, I already know my name. My name would be uh, Barry Cinnamon. Uh, <laughs> that is but, perfect. But See, I, I like I'm the drag sh- name. Uh, no, you should do Heather Osexual. Oh, beautiful. That's so or good. Or Diana AIDS. <laughs> Oh no. No, heterosexual works. <laughs> but I I'm consistently surprised on that show with, you know, drag racing being a performance on its own like how much foundational performance is somewhat lacking? Like some of these queens absolutely have it. They are funny, they are sharp, their timing is good, they have so much stage charisma. And then there's some that if they're not drag racing only, it's just like, "Oh, honey, oh, you got to you yeah. gotta do something. <laughs> well, there's a standard set, you know. When you go into drag race now, you kind of have to have a little bit of acting ability, a little bit of singing, dancing. And I feel like if I were to go on to drag race, I would take a dance class, sharpen up my singing a little bit, just so I can carry a tune and not be so out of place. But the only thing I would prepare for, I they they get a list of the possible lip sync for your life songs, right? Yeah. I would just study that and just dedicate myself to thinking I'd be in the bottom two every time and just practice the lip sync so I'd I'd win the bottom two every single time until the the finals. That would be well, my strategy. And the Peru did that on Drag Race Holland. Oh damn. There's I a reason why it's the worst season. Oh, dang. <laughs> um, no, but like, I've always wanted to do this thing where this guy on TikTok said, for my cardio, he puts on a list of all the songs that have been used on Drag Race for lip syncs, and he just goes, for an hour, I pretend I'm lip syncing for my life. And listen, <laughs> I need to find someone who will do this workout with me, because that would be so much fun. Amazing. But yeah, it was a great time. Thank you if you came out. Thank you so much for your donations. We are still taking donations for the month of June. Uh, and so far, it's it's been great. It's been really good. Uh, people have been showing up, and we have some prizes to give out. Yeah. Uh, we have our first uh, raffle, which is the Loyal Spoils raffle. So we're going to keep doing Loyal Spoils episodes. And the plan is, if you want to claim a spot where, before Eric and I start talking about the book, you and I will just talk about it in full spoilers, the ramifications for the rest of the series, everything up to that point, you know? So we have 11 slots, starting with the Fires of Heaven all the way to A New Spring. And so if you guys want to do this, uh, $50 is an automatic win, and you get to pick whichever book you want. Uh, and $25 is, is, the, uh, is an entry spot. And then the other one is a voice of the pod. Do you have some dulcet tones that you'd like to uh, allow our other listeners to hear? Do you um, do you have a rumbly the register? Some, there's some really iconic moments in Wheel of Time. Um, I won't shout at you. The letter on the dock. The buddy cop carriage ride. Those who fight. The dive tackle point of view. Blank. Blank. Kill. If you want to do 
have your voice featured on those moments, or if you want to read the opening prophecy or the epigraph at the end, uh, $20 minimum donation is an automatic winning. You get to pick which money you want to do. And $10 is our entry spot. But there is also a another prize. The amazing and astonishingly talented tree has offered up a custom digital painting printed on canvas to the highest donation. So it can be anything from a landscape, pet portrait, wheel of time, etc. The offer is only applicable to U.S. and Canada, but Tree has an amazing art style, y'all. I might even put in because I might want some art myself. So we will let you guys know what the date is on the new uh, part two, which should be by the end of the month. And if it gets into July, that's okay. Pride month is still pride month. Um, yeah, we can we can have. So, Eric, do you month. have anything else you want to say? Uh, no, I don't think I have anything to promote at this time. So I'm I'm ready to dive in for a second time. All right, we're gonna swim on into those glass uh, columns. So let's start with chapter twenty one into the heart. So a rare moraine POV. I feel like. The last one we got was in The Great Hunt. What did you think about this? Honestly, I I loved it because I think up until this point, we have so many audience surrogates. Like, we have so many, uh, you know, we have the the, uh, Emmonsfield Five who are, you know, exploring this world and getting to know this world growing up. And so the audience kind of gets to see the world for the first time through their lens. But this is kind of like the first time we get to see it through Robert Jordan's lens. Like, there's a much more mature viewpoint happening here. There's a lot more. There's a lot more nuance. There's a lot more things going on. And personally, I loved it because uh, up until this point, I was I was very wary of Moraine. Like, I think very much like with Perrin and Matt, I was kind of like, don't trust, don't trust the Aes Sedai. But we just learn that there's so much cooking and that she has her fingers in so many pies. She's pulling on so many strings. Um, because remind me, because th- this is like a, a large group of chapters. This is this is her and Tom, right? Uh, this is when her and Egwene are in the heart of the stone. And yes. she's kind of looking around at everyone before Rand comes in with the Aiel. Right. Yeah, so... Uh, personally, I I love point of views when it's someone that's a little bit more established, a little bit more older. I feel like we get a little bit of a peek behind the curtains a bit more. Uh, yeah. I felt like we got a lot of that this time around. Yeah, and we... So this chapter, for the most part, takes place kind of before slash during um, Elena Nine's previous chapter and Perrin's. So... We kind of get, uh, Moraine doesn't know where Lan is because he's finding Julian. She knows Tom is leaving for the docks to go to the boat where Elena and Nynaeve are. She doesn't know where Perrin is, but it all kind of comes together when Rand stabs the floor. (laughs) But this is a really interesting chapter. I mean, uh we learn that Egwene has no idea what's going on in the two rivers and Moraine kind of sees potential in Egwene. She says she's growing, 
but we need to get her a little bit more malleable before she becomes too hard. Yeah, we see a lot of planning. We see a lot of, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of track in what we're going to see in the next couple of books. So I tried to really read in between the lines and, you know, kind of really try to read this with a bit of foresight because Moraine's always planning. She's always two steps ahead. And it feels like there's a lot of that going on with a lot of the characters around her. Yeah. And one detail that when I was rereading this, that kind of freaked me out a bit. Moraine says that the Black Aja's plan with Mazram Taim seems very likely, and she sent a letter to Swan saying, hey, be on the lookout. Swan never got that letter. When Swan was saying, Moraine uh, told me that he has the stone, he has the stone of tear and Kalendor. Nothing about Mazram Taim's plan. And it yeah. makes me scared because I realized the Black Aja is intercepting her letters. Exactly. And I actually had a, uh, had a thought about that because yeah. this, this means one of two things. Either the Black Aja is just that powerful enough to be able to externally interfere with Moraine, or it's something much more sinister and internal. There's somebody close to Moraine that is keeping an eye on her very closely and airing out all of her plans before they happen. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think it's... Well, it's obviously not Swan. Do you have a suspicion as to who might be intercepting the letters? If there's a plan? God, I got nothing on this one, man. This is like... we Robert Jordan is officially like just laying down the heavy fog of don't trust anybody. Anybody could have any intention. And, you know, it could be a reveal of somebody that we known from the first book it could be a new character again something external and i wouldn't be surprised because that's how large this series is kind of blowing out at this point yeah yeah i know it's not an interesting answer i'm just saying there's it oh, could no, be good. anything and i wouldn't be surprised right um so we find out moray's a little happy that rand is gonna kind of be alone like, she really makes it clear that she wants to be able to influence Rand by herself without any of the Two Rivers people getting in her way. And it's kind of not nefarious, but it's a little bit like I'm trying to regain control, but I don't know if she can. No, I think, you know, because we, we, we're we seeing this reoccurring character development in Rand where he wants to be singular. He wants to start being independent and on his own as a leader. And he is pulling from those strings a bit. And Moraine is digging in a little bit deeper. And at this point, uh, I don't know if she can regain control, at least not 100%. She might be able to influence things, but the control she had in Eye of the World is all but evaporated, in my opinion. It's It's getting too big. And I think she knows that because she says she wishes his brand had still been that amiable sort of kid that she met. And Wan's talking back to her. He said, I'll trust you when you give me a reason. And she's just like, okay. So um, Brand comes in and he has the Aiel and all the Tyran lords and ladies are kind of like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. And we're kind of seeing Rand become more 
confident in his abilities as the ruler of Tyr. And I think Tom had a lot of help in that. And Maureen even admits that. She goes, a lot of Tom's letters she kind of missed when they were slipped into Rand's uh, pocket. So he called this meeting to essentially put the High Lords in their place and kind of say, you can't really fuck with me at this point. Like, he sent his seven most... uh, the seven people who were the biggest threat to him, he sends them to Kyrian to bring peace. And he sends in uh, High Lady Altima, who's tending to her husband, who's still very sick. He goes, you're going with them. And Moraine kind of goes, ooh, that's a, that's a misstep. And then Rand goes, yeah, and uh, while you're gone, your, bit, your enemy will be taking care of your husband. And at first I didn't get why that was such a, oh shit. But then I realized, uh, they talked about it at the end of the chapter where Moraine goes, uh, her husband and her enemy are going to conspire together now. So I'm like, I damn think there's like, I don't know how much of it was Tom and how much of it is Rand kind of like pulling together. You know what I mean? Yeah, we have a couple of moving pieces here. You know, we, we're getting a lot of Rand's development as a leader and, you know, an, an inspirational leader. And there are definitely some original ideas he has. There's definitely some moves he's making. However, there's also a ton of influence that are shaping those decisions. And what I'm suspecting more than anything is there's going to be a royal misstep. There's going to be a, a really bad mistake where Rand thinks he knows, but it's going to blow up in his face. He's going to learn from it, but there, there, something's going to go bad and wrong. I'm, I'm calling it right here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm trying, the Tyrion Lord your... to Kyrie and blows up in his face. Yeah, I'm seeing your face right now, and I, I feel like I've got a dead ringer for it. I, I do think the, the I think there's going to be a lot of High Lord backlash. Uh, okay. Very much, because a lot of my predictions, I feel like, I, I feel like they're going to come to fruition in the next couple of books, but they happen in the next couple of chapters. So I'm calling it right here. By the middle of this book or before, we're going to see some High Lord backlash. All right. All right. We'll see. But, um, so Rand then announces he's leaving. And he stabs Kalendor into the heart of the stone, which causes the earthquake that happened in Parents POV and uh, Nynaevena Lanes. And he's like, bye. And Moraine and Egwene follow him. And Moraine's like, hey, um, cute that you did that, but it's not held up by the defenses anymore, you know? This isn't the sword that isn't a sword anymore. It's now a sword that any of the Forsaken can get to. And Rand essentially goes, thought about that, and tells Maureen he has traps laid out that even a female channel or a male channel can get affected by. He says, if don't discriminate, you're going to get sidenated. I tried to rhyme. It didn't work. I'm no Lin-Manuel Miranda, everybody. I'm so sorry. But he announces to Egwene and Moraine that he's going to Ruidian, and it's this moment of 
threads keep getting pulled together. And I think there's a big mystery of what did Rand ask in the doorway? Uh, and what did Moraine ask? It, these are like, we know what Matt got. We don't know what Rand and Moraine got. So we keep getting little like hints and bits and pieces of like what is going on, you know? Yeah, and I, I, I imagine we'll definitely get around to knowing what they asked by the, the third act of this book. Okay. Um, so yeah, that brings us to the end of 21, and we are going straight to chapter 22, Out of the Stone. Uh, so it's like a little bit later, and they are all heading out, and Egwene catches up to Rand, and she's like, Hey, you know the Aiel stole, right? And Rand's like, yeah, it's their fifth. If they invade a clan, uh, they take the fifth of what's there. And Wade's like, huh, okay, nice, nice. So we also find out Elaine wrote two letters to Rand. One is supposed to be very, like, sweet and forthcoming, and the other's, like, apparently just... Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Um, it's like that uh, there. therapy trick. I love... I'm sorry? It's like that therapy trick where uh, you write out a letter that you don't intend to send just so you can express it and uh, make it true to yourself. <laughs> and then she did send it. Isn't that <laughs> the plot of Dear Evan Hansen or some shit? It is. It is. Um, I love the detail. Matt named his horse Pips. <laughs> Like, no, um, this this whole book has a couple of details sprinkled in that are just great. These little moments, these really specific moments. Um, I love that Rand named his horse after like a book character. That he's like, I love this book, and it just kind of like warms my heart a little bit because I'm like, Rand, you big old nerd. <laughs> um, so they make their way out of the out of tier. And Rand is looking at these decrepit farms, and he's kind of having to pull himself back from, like, going back to Tyr and helping them. He's like, no, I have to focus on this. I have to go to Ruvidian. And we find out that Rand is going to use a portal stone, and Matt is immediately like, no, fuck that. I'm not doing that. After the last time, that was horrible. I can't do that. And Moraine and Egwene are like, dude, are you sure... And Rand's just kind of pressing on. He has uh, Ruark send out a couple uh, clans of Aiel to go scout it, and Avienda finds the portal stone, and Rand catches up to her, and he's like, hey, why are you mad at me? Did I do something wrong? And she's like, you heard Elaine. She's my best friend, so I don't like you. And, you know, communication. Um, but my favorite bit of this whole chapter is they're about to embark on a dangerous mission of Rand using the power to send hundreds of people a couple hundred miles away. Like, this isn't like a trip around the block. And how does he decide the correct location? Is Matt flip a fucking coin? It's great. It's, uh, it's great that, you know, we've established these characters and these character promises, and we're really just hitting them more and more. And I'm, I'm expecting to see a lot more of, you know, leaning into Matt's luck, leaning into Rand's leadership, leaning into, you know, Perrin's growth as a wolf brother and stuff. Yeah. No, I love these. This chapter really has a 
shows more of the Rand and Matt dynamic, which I feel like Matt brings out the little, like, the little shit out of Rand, you know? It's very fun to see. And so they wink out of existence, and they that brings us to chapter 23, Beyond the Stone. If we have any more stone in our chapter titles, I think I'll go insane. So they all arrive at uh, Cheyendar. She sees uh, Ruidian in the valley below, she being Egwene. And, um, like, she sees Rand is nearly dead. Like, he's ripping onto the portal stone, and she's just like, shit, dude. And Moraine's like, we, this could have killed you. We did it. That's great. It could have killed you. Yeah, we keep seeing Rand with these near misses, uh, using the source almost to like the edge of his limit. But every time he does it, that limit keeps getting pushed further and further. He is getting stronger. Yeah, he is getting stronger, but he's still so unaware of his own power and how to control it. And so it's like, oh, cool, you can do more. But it's... Almost like a kid in a candy shop, almost. Like, giving him a bag and saying, hey, you can fill this. And he just starts filling it up with more and more candy. And you're kind of like, okay, you have that power. You need to know how to, like, pull back. If that makes any sense at all. Rand's, Rand's got, a, got a sweet dragon fang. He just loves that. He loves that source candy. Oh, yeah. So, the wise ones come down from one part of the mountain from their own settlement, and Egwene notices two men come out of the two other camps that are set up. One is this tall, older, red-headed man, and this other one is this uh, tall, dark-haired man. And Ruark sees them, and he goes like, So, does my Sep think I'm dead? And the dark-haired guy goes, No. I'm just here for an escort. And you get already this tension. So the redheaded man is named Kooladin, and he's from the Shido. And in the last chapter, we got this sort of idea that the Shido are not really well-liked, and that really the only reason that they're cooperating with the Shido is because when they went over the Dragon Wall, there was a sort of peace uh, a water oath set in place where it's like, all right, everybody be cool. And it's yeah, how we, we uh, yeah, we touch on that, that there are some age old treaties and alliances that still exist today. And even if there's friction between these factions, they, everyone honors these, oh, yeah. these words of agreement. They're, they, they're very serious about their agreements. Yeah. And I think it has to do a lot with uh toe and their beliefs of uh Gito. Right. And uh, they even acknowledge that there's a piece of Ruidian where it's like, you will not shed blood of anyone going to or from Ruidian. And even Ruidian, even Cheyendar is like sacred ground. And so um, we learned that Kuladin's first brother is in Ruidian right now because their uh, clan chief is dead. And Kuladin's like... If he dies, I'm going in there. The wise ones are like, no, no, you didn't ask permission, dude. And 
we get this idea that Kooladin is very uh, cock of the walk, almost. Do you think he's a big threat, or do you think he's just kind of like a fly? He can swat away. I I think he is all. I think he's all talk, and I think people think that of him. And I think there will be a moment where you will see he's backing it all up. Okay. Yeah, because he gets pretty bold. He So Rand goes to the Wise Ones and goes, I ask for leave to go to Ruidian. And Matt comes up next to him and goes, me too. And already Kooladin is offended by Rand being there because he's an outlander, even though he looks like an Aeolman. And when Matt joins him, he points his spear at Matt's chest and one of the wise ones just flicks him away and is like, dude, go back to your tent. Like, go the fuck away. Like, it's it's not good. Like, Rand is already causing a bit of tension among the Aiel and they know that, like, the time of change is coming, you know? Like, the traditions that they've held on to for thousands of years being broken apart in a matter of 15 minutes. Yeah, everyone is on edge, and rightfully so. There are, there are some big things that are stirring up. Yeah. it's. I just can't imagine being in the ideal place of your foundation is crumbling apart, and there's really nothing you can do but just kind of go along with it and go, okay, fine, we have to, you know? But, um, so... What I found really interesting is um, the way Amis and the Wise Ones send Rand and Matt off. Um, it's a really interesting uh, chapter. The way uh, the Wise Ones send uh, Matt and Rand off, it's one of my favorite passages, just because of how it's described. I'm going to find it real quick. I also love the moment where they're supposed to leave their weapons behind. And in the show, if they have the scene... I want Rand to take off his knives. And it's about, like, five minutes of Matt just finding daggers all over himself. Like, like in the collar, in the sleeves. And he goes, like, uh, reaches into his pocket, his boots. And there's, like, a small pile of knives all over. And, like, the wise ones are just like, okay. Um, so, um... Okay, so this is the passage uh, when Amis and the Wise Ones send Random Matt off. They are pledged to Ruidian, Amis said formally, looking over the men's heads, and the other three responded together. Ruidian belongs to the dead. They may not speak to the living until they return, she intoned, and, the, and again the others answered. The dead do not speak to the living. We do not see them until they stand among the living once more. Amis drew her shawl across her eyes, and one by one the other three did the same. Faces hidden, they spoke in unison. Be gone from among the living, and do not haunt us with memories of what is lost. Speak not of what the dead see. Silent then, they stood there, holding their shawls up, waiting. With what we see in the next couple chapters, with uh, the IU backstory and how they send Randolph, I love that imagery. You know, it's very Shakespearean almost, very, uh, I don't know what else the term is, but that idea of Rand and Matt are dead, 
and they are not to speak of what was lost, you know? And yeah, we get to know more about the Aiel. And what I'm getting more than anything is that this is about the most spiritual group that we've run into so far. Yeah. Because I feel like when you, because like the closest thing we came to the, to the magical people are Aes Sedai. And, you know, they do the whole the wheel weaves as the wheel wills. But the Aiel are so connected to the earth and where they come from and the land that nurtured them. And, you know, Gull says in a later chapter that they were sent to the threefold land as a punishment, you know. And I think it's such an interesting change in viewpoint versus the wetlanders, you know, who we never get their connection to the land. They're just kind of like, this is everything for the Aiel comes from the land. Everything for the wetlanders comes from the wheel and the creator and all of that. And I think you're right. It is such a great, like, contrast. Uh, and so Matt and Rand peace out. They run down the hill towards Ruidian. And a couple times, Egwene has stepped in and gone, Hi, I'm Egwene. You said to come here. And they're like, anyway. And they just skip past her. And so next is Avienda, who has been dreading going to Ruidian. You know, she's married to the spear. This is her life. She has always wanted to be a maiden of the spear and has been balking, really, at the idea of becoming a wise one. And the wise ones say, we were in your spot. You've got to do this. This is your duty. You know, you've kind of held back on this. And Avienda is a very interesting character. We haven't gotten with her a lot, but I feel like there's more to her that we're not seeing. No, hard agree, and I think she's being featured a little bit more here and there because, again, I think we're laying the track for a lot of what we're going to see evolve, uh, not only in this book, but the books to come. Oh, yeah. I think is going to be a bigger player. Agree. I think with her connection to Egwene and Elaine, it's, yeah. So what's funny is uh, the wise ones tell Moraine, like, oh, you wanted to have Avienda go to the tower, and Moraine's like, yeah, I think uh, Alvienda would have done well at the tower. And the wise ones are like, you coddled it. You guys get coddled in the tower. And Egwene goes, dude, I got worked the bone. If that's what they think <laughs> coddling is, you know? I thought I had it bad. Yeah, legit. And I think it, it, I think it is that thing, again, of, I think, I don't know if the wise ones see, I don't think they see what the clan chiefs see, the truth of the Aiel. But I don't know. I don't know if they have to know something, you know? I think so. I, I, I think, you know, they are a bit more hidden from the main world and stuff, but they know more than... They, they know more about everything than everyone else knows about them. I would say Oh, I think much. so, too. I think they hold on to that tradition of we don't speak about it. We don't speak about the fact that we are the people of the dragon. We just don't talk about it. I think it's a truth that they would rather not speak of. Um, and so they speak about the Terangria that Avienda will be going through. Amis says, In Ruidian, you will find three rings arranged so. She drew three lines in the air, joining together in the middle. Step through any one, you will see your future laid before you, again and again in variation. 
They will not guide you wholly as is best, for they will fade together as do stories heard long ago. Yet you will remember enough to know some things that must be for you, despised as they may be, and some that must not, cherished hopes that they are. This is the beginning of being called wise. Some women never return from the rings. Perhaps they could not face the future. Some who survive the rings do not survive their second trip to Ruidian, to the heart. You are not giving up a hard and dangerous life for a softer, but for a harder and more dangerous. So I guess that does confirm they do go through the glass columns. But, I don't know, that whole quote, knowing Moraine and her anxiety about she's losing control of Rand, and she even says, what influence does Lanfear have over Rand? And she doesn't want him to go to the shadow. So I think when she realizes, when they accidentally let it slip later on, that she has to go, I, it's a very, like, I'm curious to know what you'll see. Because I think there's so much there uh, hidden in her future, you know? So, um, we kind of get a bit about, uh, the wise ones talk to Moraine. Moraine says, you know, that letter you sent me. And they're kind of like, here's the thing. We know the dream world is better for the present, the future is kind of there. We didn't see Egwene and Matt coming and kind of said, if you hadn't come, Rand would have died. If Lan hadn't come, you would have died. Like they kind of saw, they saw, had an idea, but not, it's not a guaranteed thing. And I think that's a really interesting uh, facet of this magic system, you know, because we have foretelling, but this is a little bit different than foretelling because it's not guaranteed, you know? Right. So uh, the wise ones lead Aguena Moraine up the hill to their camp. And um, as they speak, eventually we learn a lot more about uh, Aiel culture because we meet Gai Shan, which are essentially Aiel that uh, owe a debt of toe to uh, other Aiel, and we learn about G-Tome, and the best way to break it down is if you and I are fighting in a battle, and I manage to get you down without hurting you or using a weapon, you now have a toe to me, because that's the highest uh, G. You are now made Gai Shan to me, because I essentially spared you, so... Gaishan have to spend 366 days kind of paying off that toe and lessening their captor's G. And the wise ones sort of explain, like, this is kind of hard to explain to wetlanders. And even reading it, I'm like, okay, still not clicking for me, you know? Yeah, there isn't an, an exoticism, you know, that these are a people totally apart from anything else we've seen so far. And I think you hit yeah. the nail on the head of, you know, the Aes Sedai are definitely magical. You know, there's some, some like uh, ritual, some superstition there from like the mainlanders, but the Aiel are a totally different, totally different group, a totally different system of honor and living. And because they've been tucked away and because there's not much known about them, there's just, there's so much mystery about them. Yeah. 
And I think reading the chapters where Rand sees the history, you kind of get where it all comes from. And it just makes the culture so much more interesting and you want to dive in more. Um, And so the chapter ends, Moraine is told on accident that she has to go down to Ruidian. And so she's like, peace, tell, like, don't tell land where I'm going. And so she strips naked and starts running off. And then um, Egwene finally gets her lesson in uh, dreamwalking. And Amis says, you're going to listen and then repeat it back to me. And if you get it wrong, if you can't do it after two tries, you're going to be washing pots. And Egwene's like, well, didn't come here to wash some some pots. So I love Egwene. I just love that. Like, fuck it. Let's do it. Like, no, we we get to see a lot of Egwene's ambition and not just ambition, not like a self-serving goal, but just her personality. When she sinks her teeth in, she can't let something go. No, she hunts it down. And yeah, I mean, it even shows early in the chapter when she was like, hi, I'm Egwene. You told me to come here. And they're like, no, 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 not right now. You know? They can sense there's a spark in her that she wants to know more, but they're kind of like, you're green. You don't know as much as you think you do. So it'll be interesting to see Egwene kind of learning for herself, you know? Because I think I love her ambition. I think she's managing it, but it's a little bit like Rand in the sense of, you kind of don't know what you're doing, really. Like, you have a great amount of power, but not a lot of skill, if that makes well, sense. Well, and even as, you know, a reader and as the audience, we we have this magic system that's kind of, you know, it's it's established, but we're getting into this point where, much like with the, you know, the the Wolf Brothers, there's an older set of magic that, you know, is a little bit older than than everything that you know so far. So I'm kind of getting ready for this magic system to be broken down a little bit more and to get into some more old world stuff. Same. Same. Because Aes Sedai magic feels new. And so I'm always I'm always a fan of diving deep into that like old like what is that word? Primordial sort of stuff, you know? See, I think we're starting to get into it a little bit more. So I'm excited yeah. to see what else we get into. Yeah, and aside from, you know, uh, being able to talk with wolves or walk in dreams, we, we do have, you know, scraps of that with the terrain reel and, and all these scattered bits. You know, we've gotten just these crumbs of of some true power that, that lies in this world. Yeah, and I'm curious to see... Like, what else is under the surface that's not discovered yet? Because mm-hmm. I bet you by the end of the series, Egwene's going to be like, here's six new things you thought you couldn't do before. I would not hold it past her. Um, so that's how the chapter ends, and we get into chapter 24, Ruidian. So uh, Matt and Rand are ha- nearly to the fog dome that surrounds Ruidian. And Matt kind of is noticing Matt Rand hasn't said anything since they've come down. He's just been focused. And he's like, I love that imagery of Matt just like 
trying to hold a conversation, and then he just looks, and there's Avienda in the distance running naked, and Matt's just like, okay. And I have to imagine he saw, like, a naked Moraine, and he was just like, all right, man, what else you got to throw at me here? So we, we see a bit more, too, with just how much they've kind of grown apart a little bit, because even though they were never quite best friends, like... Our, our boys, you know, Perrin, Matt, and Rand, it, it felt like maybe Perrin and Rand were a bit closer, or maybe, you know, Perrin and Matt got along a little bit, but they were never best friends, and they are growing apart more and more as they grow into themselves as individuals. Yeah. See, I always thought Rand was the center of their friendship. Like, Perrin and Matt were not friends, because I feel like they would not really get along that well, and you kind of get that sense. Like, Reading this, I'm like, oh, Perrin doesn't really like Matt. Like, I those I get those vibes, but I feel like it's like Perrin's friends with Rand, Matt's friends with Rand, and it's been that thing of Matt's uh, Rand's tried to get all three of them to hang out, and it just doesn't click. And I think Rand and Matt have a bit more of a shared experience, and of the eye of the world, they were on the road to Camelot together. I mean, they were there for each other. Versus Perrin kind of was out of the picture for a couple weeks, a couple months. And I think Matt sticks by Rand more than Perrin, you know? Yeah. I think Perrin does have that sense of obligation, but I think the pattern is not done with Matt and uh, Rand's friendship. Yeah, but it's a good friendship. I like it. They have a fun little banter. So they make it through uh, the fog of Ruidian, and Matt notices that, like, the city is empty. Like, it's half-finished buildings, and he's like, there could be anything waiting for us here. And uh, we find out there's an ocean beneath Ruidian, and uh, because Rand channels water through a fountain, and, you know... Matt's having fun, he's enjoying it, getting wet, and he looks and Rand's just laughing to himself, going, of course, of course there's an ocean here. And Matt's like, man, this summer's awful. Like, poor Matt, like, he's just trying to have a good time, and he sees, like, Rand laughing to himself, and he's just like, are you crazy yet? Like, yeah, I do hope, I do hope in the future Matt gets paired up at least a little bit more with Tom because I feel like there's a bit more free spiritedness there, or at least paired up with a character we haven't met yet that Matt can be his his goofball self a little bit more with. Matt, when he's goofball, is best Matt. When he's peak idiot nephew, chef's kiss. Um, It's my favorite. I I love my idiot boy. I he's such an idiot. Um, so. They venture forward and they reach a plaza where there's a Vendasora, which is the Tree of Life. And there's also a shit ton of Terangrio. Um, Matt notices that Rand goes to these two uh, Terangrio, uh, a male and a female. And what I kind of remembered was in the Great Hunt when uh, Lanfear and Rand were outside of Kyrian. Uh, that hotel, not hotel, inn, they found this construction site where they were digging up this, like, gigantic statue that kind of is the same, like, a larger version of what Rand finds in Ruidian. And so that can't be a coincidence. 
you know? Like, I don't think Robert Jordan would specifically point out that giant statue versus what Rand finds in Ruidian. Yeah, well, and with a story that is so centered around how many threads they are and how they intersect and connect, I don't, I don't believe for one second in coincidences in this, in this series. No, I think those might come into play, I think. I'm not sure how, but I think they might come into play. Rand says, I'm going into this, uh, the, this forest of glass columns. And he says, I'm going in. I'm sorry, you can't come in after me. And Matt's like, oh, no, what am I going to do? And he's like, I lo- again, it's that, like, a little shit. Like, he's like, don't think I'm going to come in after you. And Rand's like, don't worry, I don't think that. And Matt's like, yeah, go away. Their banter's my favorite. No, it is good. And and even though, you know, because, again, like, I, I took them to be up until, like, maybe the maybe the third book or so, you know, think that they're best friends. They, they still are friends. They are still the boys that grew up together. And yeah. their banter is really realistic and really reflective of that. Because I feel like only your best friend could make fun of the fact that you are in a forbidden city with a society that wants to kill you. And you are about to go into somewhere very dangerous and then kind of goes, well, good luck, not helping, you know, and you can kind of do that. Yeah. Versus I think if it was like Perrin and Rand, Perrin would be like sitting on the near the tree going, maybe I should go in after him. I don't know. <laughs> like Perrin would be too broody. You know, Perrin is too uh, introverted in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Rand goes, all right, peace. And he goes in. And Matt's twiddling his thumbs, and he sees a second redstone doorway. And he notices that instead of the sinuous lines like the one in Tyr, this has triangles. And so he goes, fuck it, I'll see him in an hour. And he goes through, and instead of uh, a more curved shape to it, this world has like a more jagged edge to it. And... Matt notices that there's something weird about the guy who meets him. And again, when he goes in, they talk about the ancient, uh, the ancient accords are still there. Do you have no iron, no music, no fire? And Matt's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I have questions. Let's go. Like, again, only Matt can be like, uh, you are in a sacred space, child. What are you with banging pots and pants? Fuck you! Get me out of here! Fuck you! It's great. It's very true. Matt Matt is the type of boy where if he was in a Catholic church and they were doing communion, he would be like snacking on the crackers. Oh yeah, I yeah. Matt seems like the person who would at as soon as he's able to try to get some communion wine. Yeah, I think Matt like took a huge sip of the communion wine and nine a beat his ass i yeah no matt having really no respect but i feel like it's it's a little bit of him being immature but also they've been kind of fucking around with him i'd be a little like wait no 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 no, you don't get to leave it off like this and as he's going down the hallway with the guy he notices there's something up with the dude's kilt and he goes that's a little too pale looking and it took me a second to realize, oh, it's human flesh. Which, 
it's a little worrying. I'm glad Matt got out of there, but yeah, we, we're getting we're slowly Fuck. getting more and more of these creepy details. Uh, a little bit of this, uh, some morbid stuff happening. I, I like it personally. I, I like that we're getting into a little bit more. Oh, of I do cop. too. Yeah. And again, it's what we talked about with the old magic, and uh, we'll get to talk about this a little bit more next episode because they go into a little bit more detail. So Matt goes into the same sort of chamber where he met with the snake people, and he asks the same questions like, who was the daughter of the nine moons, and why do I have to marry her? What does it mean that I'm going to give up half the light of the world to save it? What does this mean? What is like answer me and we find out that the fox people are not questions they are what do you want and so matt unknowingly asks for three things one the holes in his memories to be filled two he wants a way to be free of isodai and the power three to be away from the fox people and back to ruidian and they go all right done and they say, you're foolish for not negotiating price, and we'll decide what the price is for ourselves. Which, and then the chapter ends with Matt realizing he can't breathe. And so you're just like, fuck, 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 fuck. What did you do? What did you do? So um, I decided to combine chapters 25 and 26 into one just big, let's just dive in. But I kind of want to know, what are your thoughts? Like, how did you feel about this as a whole? I mean, because we've been singing the praises of the Aiel. And to kind of have a deconstruction of them so early on into their appearance into the series has to be a little bit jarring. Yeah, I think, you know, because again, we, we establish a ton of these these foundations of this world. And we get to know those, and a lot of them are, you know, pretty tropey, high fantasy. You, you've seen these before. And this is like, we start doing a bit more of a dive into some culture and to, you know, and I brought it up a little bit earlier in this episode, but things are getting a bit more macabre. Things are getting a little bit more, you know, just a little freaky, a little bit more spiritual. Oh, yeah. And I, I like that. I like that a lot. But I've got a feeling that the Aiel have like a few secrets, uh, Maybe some that they don't even know, but some definitely that they don't tell, you know, just outsiders or anything. So I think we're going to get some pretty fucking crazy reveals in this book. Yeah, and I'm here for that. So more, more, more than any at any point, I'm on my toes and I don't I don't necessarily like I trust some of the characters, some of the IEL characters. But unlike the Aes Sedai, where it's like I wanted to dive into that world, I want to know how that world works. I'm a little bit more wary of the Aiel's world. I just think there's some freaky things that that we haven't been told all about. Like some little snakes hidden in the grass. Like some little snakes hidden in the grass, exactly. Um, so, uh, just so you know the timeline of these chapters. So we're going a little bit... Uh, we're going back in time. Um, we're going from several hundred years before the story takes place all the way to the age of legends. Uh, so we're covering a couple thousand years of how this culture evolved. And so the first big event we start with is uh, the, we see uh, the first official Aiel clan chief. His name is Mandian. 
and he becomes the first clan chief because he's meeting with the Gen Aiel who say that you kind of have to understand why the Aiel are the way that we are, why you carry spears. And um, they say, you're not going to be leading the entire Aiel. That one will come later. And they quote the bit of the prophecy that goes, the stone that never falls will fall to announce his coming. Of the blood, but not raised by the blood, he will come from Muwidian at dawn and tie you together with bonds you cannot break. He will take you back and he will destroy you. And we get a little bit of mention of the Genail who are, there's three factions of Aiel, essentially, that we come to learn. The Genail, the Aiel, and the Lost Ones, who we know as the Tinkers. And so we're jumping ahead a little bit, but kind of finding out the Tinkers are somewhat Aiel is kind of a mindfuck, you know? Now, that one was a bit of a rug pull because a lot of things kind of made sense because the Tinkerers on their own, you know, this pacifist society, it, it seems like a bit of a, a, that's a that's a big choice to make for no reason. Yeah. But them coming from this background, it fills in a lot of the holes. You know, they've seen the other side of the coin. They've made this decision in spite of where they come from. Yeah. And it's tragic because we see the creation of like the first maiden of the spear and how these people, they were Daishan, Aiel, they were just servants to Aes Sedai and they followed the way of the leaf. They didn't believe in hurting anyone. And we see this evolution of from these people who just wanted to keep the promise to the Aes Sedai and find a place of safety, turn into one of the most feared warrior societies, you know? And I think it's, ultimately very tragic and you can kind of get why uh muradin who's the dude all the other dude in the terangria why he claws his eyes out and why it just destroys him because you live your life a certain way and this is the way that we are and to kind of learn that everything was kind of built on not a lie but to just get a, uh, an, a major upheaval like that, I can't imagine what the must do to a person. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of it's a lot to put on shoulders when you've lived your life for as long as you have, and and you know to get that veil kind of pulled back a bit. And uh, again, we we get a bit more macabre. We get a bit more of these deep, deep culture you know, heritage and lines and stuff. And, and a lot of these gaps are, are getting colored in. Yeah. Cause we get sort of like where the maidens of the spear came from. You know, we see the split from the modern Aiel to the gen Aiel, And it was something so I am defending my family. And these people turned their eyes and said, you are no longer Aiel. But these are also the people that, turned their back on people who said, oh, we want to find a place of safety. We're tired of being attacked and tired of being killed. We want to kind of find the song again that we used to sing with the Someshta and the Ogier that our great-great-grandfather would talk about. You know, it's this thing of stubborn beliefs and just wanting a way out of what is going on in their lives, you know? 
Yeah, and I think we, you know, I think this this is a point where we fill in a, a little bit of the overarching themes in the series, and I think that is, where do you come from? Who are you supposed to be? Who do you want to be? And where between those three do you actually land yeah. in your life? I mean, I think of this poet. He wrote this bit about um, wondering where you came from and like where are you going and it's where did you come from where did you go where did you come from cotton eye joe <laughs> you son of a bitch you son of a bitch i oh my god the second you said your thing i was like oh my god can i fit a cotton eye joe yes yes oh my god <laughs> but no it's the themes of finding your place in this world are very prevalent and i think even for people who are well-established, like you look at Tom, you look at Moraine, you look at Land, who for the past several decades have been like, I know what my life is going to be. All of a sudden, their lives are kind of thrown out because now Land, who's been bonded with Moraine for over 20 years, is like, do I break these bonds because I'm in love with this woman? Moraine, who's kind of been like, I know where I have to take Rand, what I have to do with the Dragon Reborn is slowly losing control of someone because through her own, I want to do well by you, but it was kind of like, I can't separate from this. And Tom, who was just this gleeman who kind of had a past is now being thrown into the end of the world, you know? And so just this whole uh, thing with the Aiel and finding out their past is, it's just, you know, I was going to go bit by bit, but I think we kind of talked about what needed to be talked about. I think um, when we get to uh, the third to last, uh, third and second to last POVs, uh, Jonai and Kuman, uh, Kalman, um, we see a little bit of, the world of the pieces of the puzzle being set into place. So Jonai uh, lives in the city of Parandusen in the Age of Legends, and he goes to the Hall of Servants where the Aes Sedai are, and he notices that it's all women. And um, there's an Aes Sedai named uh, Deandra who has had a foretelling, and she essentially says that the Daishan Aiel have a part to play we don't know when. And so we also get uh, the Nim uh, Someshta, who's the Nim that Moraine and co. meet at the end of I of the World. Um, we see Kalendor, we see the Dragon Banner, and we see off screen what will become the Eye of the World, the creation of it. And um, the final two POVs that take place in the Age of Legends are actually really cool because we see this technological advanced world like Joe cars and like these really like, Oh shit, you know, and kind of knowing what we know that we are the first age that this near utopia, the city called Parandesen, which I fully didn't understand. It was supposed to be paradise. Uh, you kind of, you see this like perfection almost. And also you see that they served Lanfear 
And I think there's just like this feeling of oof in your gut in the final uh, the final POV who uh, Charn works for Miran Sadat who will eventually become Lanfear and you see the Aiel were once very much respected. Everyone, like, this dude accidentally knocked him down and was like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. I, I'm like, please forgive me. And we learn that Mirren means to find a new source of the one power that both male and female Aes Sedai can touch. And this breaks open the Sharon, which is this giant sphere that hangs above the Kolandan. And we watch reality fall apart as uh, the hole to the Dark One's prison is open. And it's just this, holy shit, dude. The Yeah, never before do we see as grand a scope of, of time yeah. and consequence as we do in this type of flashback. Because it could have been so easily, like, I don't know, so inconsequential. But I think this builds our world a lot more past the Aiel. You know, we see little Easter eggs, like one of the soldiers has uh, a helmet that resembles the Sean Chan. And so you're kind of like left with more questions, really, as to how everything got there. Mm. But when you're speaking about the macabre, I can't help but think like Rand seeing the other Aielman claw at his own eyes and eating them and just scratching his face. It's brutal. Yeah, that, that, that'd be a rough one for me to to see personally <laughs> yeah i don't know if i'd walk out of that crystal terrain reel like that was fun i'd be curious to see how they do it in the show because that's uh, it's it's rough and i yeah i do wonder how how grisly the show is gonna get because you know again we've talked about this in uh past episodes that you have so much established fantasy you have game of thrones you have lord of the rings you have harry potter you you've got these fantasy franchises and they're you know, they've been pretty leaning into that they're going to set apart their own identity yeah. and stuff. And it's like, well, how how are you going to do that? Because the source material, you know, there, there are some stuff in there that while it's not, um, you know, necessarily uh, graphic in the way of detail, the stuff that happens is and like some, some of it is graphic for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, so and, and one thing that you said that actually struck me was um, I think you're exactly right. I think that this was such a smart way to introduce this piece of the world and this piece of history, because this could have easily been something that, you know, uh, someone found in some text and relayed to another character or, you know, yeah. was a story around a fire, but there's just something so personal about being transported there and seeing it happen as it happened. Uh, that just, it, it really makes this alive in my opinion. And the fact that Rand is like, it's not even he's watching on the outside. He becomes the viewpoint person. And he even, like, like the... He feels their pain and their heartbreak, and he remembers it. And it's... You realize now why Ruark is so hesitant to talk about uh, Ruidian and why the wise ones treat it so reverently. This is not something you can fuck around with, you know? So, it's a phenomenal chapter and it's one of my favorites in the entire series um yeah normally normally i'm i much more heavily favor dialogue in in books and stuff like i love i love 
speeches. I love dialogue between two characters. I feel like it's so illuminating and stuff. But this was one of those times where I just got lost in the painting of the words. Yeah. In a very good way where it was, you know, that probably not since, for me at least, the ending of Eye of the World or Great Hunt when those, you know, last uh, climaxes are, are kind of being painted in their, you know, two to three page uh, epic entries. I, I've never been so engrossed in just the writing. And this yeah. one for me has been a, a highlight of the series, these these last two chapters. It's one of Robert Jordan's best stuff. Absolutely. Um, and so agree. the chap. Oh, yeah. Like, Robert Jordan writes some great stuff, and there's more phenomenal stuff coming up. But no, I it's Chef's Kiss. So he, he he solidified himself to me as a as a very poetic writer at this yeah, point. There's a beauty in it and we get one POV of post breaking of the world and we kind of see the destruction of what the male Aes Sedai did and you know, that description of the Aiel who were singing to the male Aes Sedai, trying to get him to remember, and it's so heartbreaking. Because again, you remember who the Daishan Aiel are. And the unfairness of the taint of Syedin and how you understand why there is such a stigma against male channelers, the sheer destruction, I mean, it caused the breaking of the world and the end of the of what was the pinnacle of society. And it's 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 hard to read, you know. The broader implications are just really tough. The chapter ends, uh, Rand leaves the Crystal Triangrial, and he sees Matt hanging from the Tree of Life, which, when you think about how the Fox people were like, hey, you didn't make a deal, so... Bye. So, uh, Rand sees that he's not hanging from a branch, he's hanging from a spear, and he notices that Matt has a medallion on, and he manages to revive Matt, and uh, he notices that on the spear, on the spear, there's uh, uh, two ravens, and then in old tongue, it's written, "Thus is our treaty written. Thus is agreement made. Thought is the arrow of time. Memory never fades. What was asked is given. The price is paid." So, do you think we've fulfilled the "to live and to die again" part of Matt's uh, answer, or do you think? not yet i think we have and i think you know again we 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 keep having these uh these tribulations that these characters go through and after everyone they they kind of learn a little bit more they kind of grow a bit more they're a little bit savvier and i think matt is going to be a just a little bit more smart when dealing with entities yeah <laughs> from now on i you would have hoped that he would have learned his first lesson after the dagger but you know i do think this is a part of it and now he he gets these, you know, he's, uh, he probably doesn't think they're gifts, but, you know, I, I think it's really cool. I think, I think this is going to carry over for the rest of the series. Yeah. I am curious what, because of what he specifically wanted, what the spear and what that medallion is going to do for him. And if they really did give him back his memories, you know? Uh, I'm, I'm curious if it's if it's going to be a literal wish grant or if it's going to be a bit of a monkey paw situation. <laughs> it seems like it's a little bit of both. Like, everything has its price. You can't just 
get what you want. And I think maybe yeah. that was their monkey paw curling, uh, near, uh, nearly killing that. Um, but we'll see, because uh, as Rand and Matt make their way out of Ruidian, they're attacked by these little dust creatures. And it's funny, we've been debating whether Rand is he who comes with the dawn. And we get our answer, because as they're making their way uh, out of the fog, Matt remarks, oh, the sun's rising, and Matt and Rand goes, they're waiting for me up there. And so I'm like, there you go. He's he who comes there, with the dawn. You know, again, I keep thinking that, like, these are, like, little seeds that are going to take five books to grow and stuff, but a lot of stuff just happens kind of here and now, yeah. and it's it's very obvious, and that doesn't take away from how good it is. It just is like, oh, yeah, okay, he, he is. He, he is. <laughs> he is he who comes with the dawn. No, plot twist, he gets up there, falls, breaks his neck, and Matt gets up, and they're like, it's you! <laughs> oh my god, if Matt, I just, because, I, I do think about that sometimes, like, it could have, it could have been any of the boys from Emmonsfield, yeah. you know, like, they were being hunted, and it, it could have been any of them, and I, I think sometimes, you know, Perrin probably could have shouldered it pretty okay, I, th- I think he would have been a great dragon reborn, and then I think about Matt. <laughs> and i just i just think of like what a train wreck that that could have been for for everyone in this world <laughs> like maureen has a hard enough time dealing with Rand. could you imagine trying to deal with matt matt you have to listen to me oh. no <laughs> like oh my god maureen would just have a nervous breakdown she'd be like all right tarman guidance happening i'm done <laughs> but yes, uh, Rand is the one who comes with the Dom and very much, even you know, erasing all of my past predictions. He is the Dragon Reborn. He is the one who comes with the Dom. Rand is the man. To see if Rand truly wasn't the Dragon Reborn. You were, even after the book called The Dragon Reborn, you were like, no, 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 no. I don't think it's him. I was ready for a rug pull. Like, in... You know, and, and that's the crazy thing. I, I I think I've called too many rug pulls before things have been established. Right. Because I do think we're in for some twists and turns, but I do think the heavier ones are just still a ways away. But I do I do still maintain some of my predictions. I, I do still feel very strongly, especially after revisiting some of them on the Discord. That's fair. Yeah. And I think that's a good place to end the episode. Um Thank you, everyone, for listening. We're so sorry we didn't get to do this live, but technology is a bitch sometimes. Um, Eric, please, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Viva Ladains. That is V-I-V-A-L-A-D-A-I-N-S. You can follow me on uh, Instagram at Dalen M. Tone or follow our official uh Twitter and Instagram, uh, Loyal's Book Club on Instagram, Loyal underscore S on Twitter. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>